0: All right, Colossians chapter number 2 tonight, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 7. Paul, writing to this little church, says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So the, we really enter in tonight to the, to the main themes. We, we talked a little bit about it last week, but what is the intent? What is the goal? What is the, the, the grand purpose for which Paul is writing this epistle to the church at Colossae? Remember that the pastor, Epaphras, has journeyed Jerome to, Rome to uh, speak with Paul in prison because heresy, bad doctrine, has begun to crep, uh, creep its way, it has crept its way, into the church at Colossae. And so last week we talked about the truth about Christ. And I I don't think it can be overstated that the way that we guard ourselves against bad doctrine is through good doctrine. Uh, Anywhere where there's an absence of firm foundational understanding of the truth of the word of God, there is a, a seedbed for every bad doctrine. And you'll find this to be common that places where heresy and bad doctrine thrive are often places that are populated with shallow Christians, people that don't have a firm grasp or understanding of the word of God. And I don't mean simply that they disagree with my perspective on the Bible. I mean, uh, very often these are places where people can't quote very familiar, very common scriptures. Uh, They often misquote scriptures because they don't have a familiarity with the word of God. So it should be no surprise to us that before Paul deals with the heresies, he talks about Christ and he says, if we make him preeminent, put him in his proper place, that will go a long way to dealing with the bad doctrines, the false teachings, the errors that seek to make their way into the New Testament church. So he basically has two thoughts that he's going to give us in chapter number two. First, he talks about experiencing biblical truth. Now, the overall theme of this chapter is the truth about the cult that was seeking to infiltrate the church at Colossae. And he begins in in launching this defense against this cultish and and heretical doctrine by talking about the truth, because it is the truth that guards against error. And uh, that's the verses that we read, the first seven verses. Then from verse 8 down to verse 23, uh, he spends some time exposing the lies. That were prevalent. And I think what you're going to find is that there's five errors that he mentions in those latter verses in this chapter. And all five of these, they really sum up what is the great doctrinal errors both of Paul's day and of our day. But first, before he gets into that, he wants them to recognize and experience three important truths. The first thing he gives us is a truth about Christians in verse number one and two. Uh, He says this, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He points to the fact that as believers, number one, he used this word conflict. That's a military word. That's a term of fighting. It's a term of of strife. It is a, a term of combat. And he's using that very, very distinctively to remind you and I that we are engaged as believers in a common battle. He says, I am in great conflict because of what you're going through. And he's writing this letter in response to the great doctrinal conflict that is taking place at Colossae. And what he's saying is this, you're in a battle, and I also, though I may be many hundreds of miles away, I too am engaged in this battle. Let it never be lost on us as New Testament believers that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Uh, that the devil does seek to disrupt and to deceive and to derail and to destroy the church of the living God and the work that God is doing in our lives. It is a conflict. Like the old songwriter said, it's a battleground, brother. It's not a playground. It's not a playroom. It's it's not something to be taken lightly. Paul viewed himself as in the same fight with them. And he was willing. I mean, think about all the things Paul's facing that he could have occupied his attention towards. But instead, he says, I am engaging spiritually. I'm praying for you. I'm asking God to safeguard you. And I'm writing this letter because I'm doing my part to engage in this battle to try to protect you from error and heresy. The reason for this is found in the latter portion of the verse. He says, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. Says this is why I'm doing it, because we have a common bond together. We are encircled by this bond. We are knit together in love. This term knit together is going to find its way into the latter portion of this chapter when it talks about the body of Christ being all of the various joints being knit together. And uh, Paul used this same terminology when he talked about the time that he had spent in the desert learning the revealed truth of God and that when he came back he declared these truths. And it's got that same idea and tone and tenor or 2. It's saying, I was bringing these two uh, previously incompatible worlds together. I've been raised and steeped in Judaism. I spent time in the desert. God teaching me and reconciling these truths. And He knit together these realities in a seamless revelation. He used that same term. He says, you and I as believers, we have been knit together. One commentator said this, and it just jumped out at me. I don't know if it's because things that I'm going through in life. I don't know if it's because just as a pastor. But he said this, We cannot unravel our lives from other believers. We are knit together. The same way that you can't separate the threads of a garment without destroying the garment, we cannot unravel our lives from other believers. You know, I think there's a tendency in this day of consumer Christianity, in this day of shallow connectedness, for us all to sort of keep each other. We want each other at arm's length, but we just don't want each other closer than that. We want people around. We we don't want to be isolated, and yet we're more isolated today than we've ever been because there's not a deep connectedness amongst believers. We don't know each other's problems and burdens. We're not praying for each other. We're not weeping with each other when we weep and laughing with, with each other when we laugh. Paul says, you're in a battle. Well, guess what? I'm in that battle with you. I'm in that battle because God has knit our hearts together. So he's reminding them that in this battle they're engaged in, they're not alone. They have people that love them that are seeking their well-being. Then he gives them a truth about Christ. Look at the end of verse number uh, 2. He says this, knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One commentator said it this way, that this is a skyscraper of a statement. And it is quintessentially Pauline, because Paul would, when he would make these statements, he just stacked phrase upon phrase upon phrase. What it all boils down to is this, he's saying, I am striving, I am fighting, I am praying that you might come into a full comprehension of the knowledge of Christ. Now, again, this is going to find its way into the forefront later on in this chapter because he's going to describe how knowing Christ is what safeguards us against error. But first, he merely points to the fact that the Christian experience is defined and is centered upon knowledge of Jesus Christ. Anything that seeks to displace Christ in his role of preeminence is not of God. And he's going to say that in no uncertain terms. He gives three ways he wants them to know Christ. Uh, and we might say it this way, that knowledge of Christ, he says, enriches them. He wants them to know Christ in an increasing way. He says, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now, again, I don't want to get ahead of my lesson, but later on, Paul is going to point to the fact that the Gnostics that were uh, assailing the church at Colossae, part of their tactics was to make those that were not Gnostics feel as though they were missing out on something, by not being a part of their movement and a part of their cult. And he reminds them right out the gate that, listen, in Jesus Christ, we have all assurance, all of the riches of the full assurance of the understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. As Bible believers, making Christ our passion, our desire, our, our, our subject, our dissertation, our theme, we're not missing out on anything. One old man of God said it this way, that a person that reads the Bible to the forsaking of all other books will have more knowledge than a person that reads all other books to the forsaking of the Bible. That's not to say that those things have to be mutually exclusive of each other, but it is to say this, that to know Christ is to know enough. All through the Word of God, God always seeks to open the eyes of His people. He always seeks to enrich them through knowledge. The devil does not deal in truth, in, in knowledge, in wisdom. He deals in image, and he deals in facade, and he deals in propaganda. When the devil comes to man, he gives Eve a doubt. He says, Hath God said. And then he makes a denial. He says, you shall not surely die. And that leads to a delusion. He says, "Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. It all began by planting the seed of doubt about God's word, in Eve's heart, that led to a denial of the plain spoken truth of God's word, which then led to full blown deceit and her buying into the delusion. Paul says that's not what God wants for you. He wants you to be enriched by the knowledge of Christ. He wants you to be enlightened. He says to the full assurance of the understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Now, every once in a while, there'll be a book that comes out that proposes and purports to set forth the hidden key, the hidden mathematical sequence and code to the Bible. And every few years this comes out and it's all about, you know, you take the fourth letter here and you subtract it from this letter and then you add this and then you divide it by seven and then you come up with this secret code. And I've had people ask me about this in the past. You know, what do you think, preacher? And I've I just got to be honest with you, I think it's nonsense. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe that numbers in the Bible have significance, but I don't believe the Bible is a puzzle book. I don't believe God would go to such great lengths. I mean, and and of all the books of the Bible that people treat this way, they treat the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ this way more than anything else. As though the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is supposed to be this great mystery that we are to have to go to great pains to try to unravel. And I can't help but chuckle when I consider that they're saying the most mysterious book in the Bible is named the revelation of Jesus Christ. God went to great lengths to try to reveal to us, in His Word, who He is. And Paul says that's what God desires. Now remember, the term mystery that the Gnostics had hijacked means something very different in God's definition. In God's definition of a mystery, a mystery is something that can only be known by revelation, was not known at one time, but has now been revealed to mankind by God's Word. The Gnostics, when they said something was a mystery, they meant, we've got a secret. And if you join our little club, we'll tell you what the secret is. Now, Paul says, listen, God's desire is to enlighten you. He wants you to understand the uh, acknowledgement to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. And then he says this. He, he uses the term mystery of God and of the father and of Christ. That's fascinating. The term God, of course, is the creator, creator title, L.O.V., The term father, Abba, it denotes a, a paternal relationship. And of course, Christ is the messianic title of the Lord Jesus. It denotes his office. And that this mystery would involve all those things. That the creator God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he sent, that he might die in man's place, that he might fulfill the office of the Messiah... And that we then might be able, like Him, to cry out to our Father, our Heavenly Father, Abba, Father, this mystery. And the commentator uses this word, uh, Christ enthralls us. Enthralls us. He says we ought to be obsessed with the truth of the Word of God. We ought to learn these things about Christ in an increasing way, in an inexhaustible way. He says, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The world has plenty of knowledge, not very much wisdom. But if we can know Christ in knowing him, and I don't just mean knowing him in a devotional, experiential way, although we most certainly must and should do that. But I mean, if we make a study of his person and character and mission and ministry, if we make a study of, of all of who he is and who God has revealed him to be, in that we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, this is important, look at verse number four, in an invincible way. He says, this I say. Well, now, what's he saying? He's saying the past three verses. I told you all this, that I want you to know Christ, that I want you to study him, to obsess over him, to learn him. And here's why. Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Knowing Christ has the ability to safeguard us against the lies of the devil. The best way to make sure you're not going to be ensnared and trapped in error is to put Christ in his proper place in your life in every way, in your, in, in your devotional life, in your study life, in the sense of his lordship and his authority over your life. If you'll let Christ run your life, listen, your life won't be a mess. It's that simple. And then he gives some truth about Christianity. Look at verse number five. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. There's much we could say about this, but I would once again, we mentioned it in chapter 1, the, the, the very first week, but I would point to you that, that Paul points to two dimensions in which the believer exists. He says, I'm absent in the flesh, but I'm with you in the Spirit. Remember, he told them at the beginning of the book of Colossians, he, said that he writes to the saints, he says, that are at Colossae, which are in Christ. You find this same language used whenever John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's in the Isles, but he's also in the Spirit. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he addresses it to the church at Ephesus, but he also tells them that they are dwelling in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. What he's getting at is this, that there is more to this life, there is more to this world, there is more to this existence than merely that which we see. There is a spiritual reality. And as a believer, as a Christian, we have to acknowledge that because there are blessings in that spiritual realm. There are battles in that spiritual realm. But if we have blindness in this realm, then it's going to produce a barrenness in that realm. In other words, we can't live as if there are not spiritual warfare and battles around us. And we can't live and expect for our life to be what Christ wants it to be without acknowledging all of the spiritual blessings that we have in the person of Christ. Paul's going to deal with both of these things towards the end of the chapter. The fact that there are battles here on earth, but they are not. We don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in in high places, uh, against darkness. These battles that we're fighting, they're not physical battles. They're spiritual battles. He points to the fact that as a Christian, we are aware of this. He points to the fact that we have life under a new direction. He says, he uses this terminology in verse number six. He said, or in in verse, let me see, let me get it right here. Yeah, in verse number six, he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in it. It's interesting because when you study through the Bible, at varying times you will have uh, Christ's name mentioned in, in variations. He'll be called Jesus Christ. He'll be called Jesus. This same Jesus shall return unto you in like manner. He'll be called Jesus Christ the Lord. He'll be called Christ. Earlier in verse number two, he was called simply as Christ. Sometimes he will be called Christ Jesus. And then here it says Christ Jesus the Lord. Whenever the terminology, this dual title, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus is used, there is the first word given. That's the primary. And the second word is always secondary to it. In other words, when it talks about Jesus, that was his human name, it's speaking of his humanity. Him who walked amongst us in flesh, him who condescended from the heavens and ministered amongst men, but has been exalted back to a place by the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. And the converse is true when these words are reversed. When it says Christ Jesus, it's denoting him who is exalted. Him who is above all others, but has condescended to minister to you and I to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What he's saying is this, this Christ Jesus, this all glorious, all splendorous Messiah, the Son of God, God, the Son, God in the flesh that sits at at the right hand of the Father. He is the Lord. The term Lord denotes authority. And here Paul is invoking both the glory and the authority of, of Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's going to be vitally important when you get into some of these heresies because they treated Jesus as though he was merely some lesser tier and degree of angel and that he was no authority uh, to speak of. Christ, or Paul says that's nonsense. Our life has been put under a new direction and our Lord, our authority is Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he gives us life with a new distinction. I've got to hurry through this, but look at verse 7. He gives three illustrations about what we are to be and how we are to live. He gives first an agricultural illustration. He says we are rooted in him. Of course, the roots of a plant, if a plant is healthy uh, and, and has any lasting quality, most of the time the roots under the ground will have a similar uh, span and circumference as the branches above the ground. And what he's saying is this, as you combat this heresy, make sure that you're not just uh, bearing fruit upward, but that you're putting roots down How do we do that? How do we become rooted in Christ Uh, through the study of his word, through our prayer life, through all of those things that we are so often neglect because they don't evoke the glorious outward public aspects of the Christian life, the things that we do in the quietude of our own home, the things that we do in the meditation of our own heart. We are to be rooted in Jesus Christ through these things. Then he gives an architectural illustration. He says, not only are we to be rooted in him, but we are to be built up. In Him. In other words, we are to be uh, plunging roots downward, but bearing fruit upward. Our rootedness in Christ will always—not should—it will. If we are rooted in Him, it will produce an outward way of living. And then He gives an athletic illustration. He says, "This established in the faith." The word carries the idea of carrying and maintaining a steady pace, like a runner that wins the marathon not by being the fastest but by being the steadiest, by maintaining the right pace for the race. What he's getting at is this, that as believers, our life should be marked not by being tossed about by every wind and slide of doctrine, but rather by finding our our center, our purpose, our, our existence, our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, any religion or any movement that's always running from this leader to that leader from this doctrine to that doctrine from this movement to that movement that's not of the Lord but one that stays centered on the person of Jesus Christ uh, that's something that God can use and will endorse and the end of verse number 7 he says the purpose of this is that as you have been taught we ought to abound therein abound therein with thanksgiving i don't want i don't want to just jump over that phrase as you've been taught because, again, we live in a day where people are always running for the next new thing. Every few weeks, somebody will come out with some great theological mystery, novel nonsense that will skyrocket its way to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. And it's always about the Illuminati or the Freemasons or the Bible code or this or that or the other. Paul says, you don't need some new thing. You need what you've been taught, what has been revealed through the body of Scripture, You need to root down in it, you need to build up out of it, and you need to be stabilized, established upon it. Believers, we ought not be running around seeking for the next new thing and the next new fad. Instead, we ought to settle our hearts on Jesus Christ and endeavor to abound in that with thanksgiving. So he gives some truth about uh, Christians, Christianity about Christ, and he points to the fact that the best safeguard against error is to walk with Christ to know Christ. To live in Christ. In other words, your devotional life is what safeguards your doctrinal life. Now, your doctrinal life should inform your devotional life. But it's your devotional life that safeguards you. There's been a lot of people that started off with good doctrine and went astray. But there's never been anybody that started off walking with Christ, stayed walking with Christ, that went astray. If we can stay close to Him, then that will safeguard our doctrinal life. So he moves into the next portion, and this occupies the rest of the chapter. He has told them some things about experiencing the truth, but now he spends some time exposing the lies that were told. I want to read something to you, if that's all right. I'll probably do it either way. Um, About Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is not a very common word. You're probably not very apt to hear that nowadays. But I want to give you a little overview of what Gnosticism is what it was in the day of Paul, what it still is to this very day. And I want to read this to you, and I'm going to post this later. You don't have it in your notes, but I'm probably going to post this online if you want a copy of it. The cult at Colossae was propagating five major errors, and Paul unravels them. They were advocating intellectualism, ritualism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. The Gnostic heresy was in its beginning stages, did not come to full flower and fruit until the second century when it was professed in every part of the civilized world. Its schools were as numerous and as zealously attended as any of the great academies of Greece or Asia, even in their brightest days. There's a man named D.M. Panton that wrote a uh, pamphlet on Gnosticism, and he said this, he gave these following tenets of it. Historically, it absorbed non-Christian thought into the Christian faith. Philosophically, it lodged sin in matter and therefore repudiated the creator as either impotent or evil. You get that? In other words, all things tangible were inherently evil and wicked. That becomes a problem when you recognize that the mystery of godliness was that God was manifest in the flesh. If you claim that everything tangible is evil inherently, you're going to have some theological problems. Practically, numerous Gnostic schools prohibited marriage as multiplying incurable matter. What was the incurable matter that marriage multiplied? Babies, people. It just contributed to the problem. Much of the great population scare that took place back in the 70s and is starting to take place today. A lot of uh, of modern progressive liberals are saying we ought to not have kids because global warming and this and that. This is an old line. It did not start in the 70s with some book written by Coop. This is something that's existed for a long time. Similarly, numerous Gnostics prohibited the eating of certain foods and uh, as being inherently evil. Theologically, the Jehovah of the Old Testament was portrayed as the tribal God of Israel. He was denounced as as an alien and hostile deity. Christologically, it separated Jesus from Christ, denying both the deity and the humanity of the Lord. And inevitably... It finally sank into irreparable apostasy. Apostasy is not merely corruption of the truth. It's a total change of the truth or a complete abandonment of the faith previously held. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which simply means to know. The Gnostics thought that they had special knowledge that could be revealed only to those who were initiated into their secrets. The common people could think whatever they wished. Only those who had been initiated could find the real truth. This use of the word gnosis inspired T.H. Huxley to coin the word agnostic, a Gnostic is a man who says that he knows an agnostic is a man who says that he doesn't know. We do not have to look far for modern Gnostic cults. Theosophy is unblushingly Gnostic in theosophy. Jehovah is the creating eon, the demiurge. He is charged with all the attributes of arrogance, jealousy, hatred and revenge, which exist in the unregenerate and sinful human heart. Madame Blavatsky, founder of Theosophy, said Jehovah is Cain. Christian science is equally Gnostic. Mary Baker Eddy taught that Jehovah was a tribal god, idolatrously worshipped by Israel, ranking with Baal, Moloch, Vishnu, and Aphrodite. She declared Jesus was born of Mary, Christ was born of God a doctrine characteristic of Gnosticism. The bottom line in Christian science is the Gnostic belief that all evil is lodged in matter. Christian science uses Christian words and terms, but empties them of all Christian meaning and redefines them in Gnostic terms. The Gnostics were divided when it came to the person of Christ. Some of them embraced a philosophy known as Gnosticism. The name is derived from the Greek word meaning to seem. The teaching was that because matter is evil, Christ could not possibly be associated with the human body, despite the clear teaching of the New Testament. The man, Jesus, only seemed to have a human body. He was not born. He did not die. His body was an illusion. This form of Gnosticism denied the humanity of Jesus. There was another form of Gnosticism known as Serenthianism, so-called after its author, Serenthus, an Egyptian Jew who studied philosophy in Alexandria, possibly in the school of Philo. As is noted elsewhere, these Gnostics believe that, quote, the Christ came upon the human body of Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, and that it left him at the beginning of his sufferings at Calvary. According to them, this explains why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This form of Gnosticism denied the deity of Christ. Gnostic ideas regarding the evil nature of matter gave rise to divergent forms of Gnostic teaching regarding the human body. One school of Gnostic thought advocated asceticism, which is self-discipline, self-denial, abstinence, severity. The thing to do was stringently deny the body its desires. The body needed to be starved and scourged and made to suffer. Getting married was forbidden. Eating meat was forbidden. This kind of teaching has always appealed to certain individuals. Among the Jews, the Essenes taught it. Among the Greeks, the Stoics were its great advocates. Among Christians, monks who took vows of poverty and the flagellants who wore hair shirts and scourged themselves are prime examples. A different school of Gnostic thought went off in the opposite direction. This Gnostic brand embraced what came to be known as antinomianism. That's an important term. Because antinomianism also is associated with this idea today that I'm live any way that I want because of grace. Let me tell you something. If you've got the grace of God in your life, it's going to make you want to live different than you used to live. Uh, those who espoused this path believed that the best thing to do with the body was to indulge its appetites to the points where they were saturated and satiated to the point of exhaustion. The Epicureans and the Nicolaitans took this road, and King Solomon learned that this too was vanity. This kind of thing, in its earliest stages, was being circulated at Colossae. This religious brew was made even more potent by the addition of some Jewish ingredients and some toxic flavoring of mysticism. I know that was a lot to read. I appreciate you bearing with me. What it boils down to is this, that they believe that matter was evil. Because matter was evil, uh, God uh, couldn't have manifested himself in the flesh. So Jesus Christ either had to only appear to have a body, but not really have a body. Or Jesus, the human body, was an entity. And, quote, the Christ, the divine, was an entity. And that in the likeness of a dove, it descended upon his body, and then it abandoned him before Calvary. This is, by the way, the same reason because they claimed that they had no sin, that sin was all relative. That's the reason that John wrote combating this same uh, heresy in 1 John. He wrote that if any man say you have no sin, he hath deceived himself. He's a liar. The truth is not in him. So this was very prevalent in, in its day. And it's still prevalent today. We mentioned theosophy. You may have never heard that term before. We mentioned Christian science. You probably have heard that term before. But at the heart of basically every perversion of Christendom, you'll find some of these tenets to be present there. Roman Catholicism is rife with the idea of asceticism. It's ironic because as hypocrites, they embrace all sorts of fleshly indulgences and they just have to pay money to Rome for it. But the monks found their their uh, birth, their beginning in the Roman Catholic Church And the monks practiced and believed in this asceticism It's got to beat yourself up Beat yourself with whip Wear hair shirts Deprive your body Because that pleases God Paul is going to methodically unravel Each of these five heresies And I want you to notice them with me Look at verse number 8 He begins by addressing intellectualism He says Beware lest any man spoil you Through philosophy and vain deceit After the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. When we talk about secular reasoning, Paul uses the term philosophy. It's interesting because Paul never used the term philosophy. In fact, you'll only find the term used this one place. It's like Paul picks it up, says, that's a mess, and then throws it on the trash heap of this... Intellectualism is the endeavor to know God through reasoning, divorced from revelation, from the truth of God's Word. And it is the belief that through our intellectual faculties, we have the ability to know God without Him having to make things known to us. Notice first off, it's menace. Paul says, "Beware lest any man spoil you? That word spoil is interesting. It means to loot. It means to kidnap. In classical Greek, this word was used to to define bandits that carried away men's daughters. That's how the word was used. And that's how Paul... Remember, when Paul writes this, he's writing after the days of classical Greek. And he's talking about these robber barons, these kidnappers, these pirates that would go and would steal daughters away from their husbands. And he says, that's what intellectualism, that's what philosophy, that's what human reasoning, divorced from divine revelation is seeking to do to you. It wants to lay chains on you and carry you away from the revealed truth of Christ in the Word of God. There is a great endeavor today to reconcile philosophy and theology. I want you to listen carefully. Well, I'm not saying science and theology. Because science, if it's real science and not science falsely so called, should be the study of the Creator's autograph. It should be the observation of God's handiwork. And philosophy, inasmuch as what we endeavor to do is to find uh, scriptural, spiritual order in the revealed truth of God's Word, I'm not against people being intellectual. I certainly don't want people to be dumber than they are now. I don't think our society can bear it. But if intellectualism seeks to unseat, if it's a question of reasoning versus revelation, then revelation should always trump. In other words... It doesn't matter whether or not what God says makes sense to our piddly minds. What matters is that God said it. He says, spoil you through vain deceit. That word deceit that's used there is found 19 times in your Bible. Every time it's talking about Satan or his works. and saying that they seek to ensnare you. The method is through reasoning versus revelation. He says, uh, notice the mistake that it makes. I'm kind of to, trying to jumble some of my notes together with some comments that I made. It says, through uh, philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. What he's saying is this, when he talks about the traditions of men, he, he, he is essentially talking about mankind's reasoning as opposed to what God has said about the matter. Traditions of men would have appealed to the Gnostics. When he's talking about tradi- the, the word tradition that's used here, it's used good, in good ways and bad ways in Scripture. Well, it's used, for instance, talking about the traditions of the Pharisees, which were their man-made, man-created tenets that they had sort of, uh, 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 you know, scabbed on to the truth of the Old Testament. There's other times the word tradition is used relating to the doctrine of the apostles. But what kind of traditions is he talking about? He's talking about the traditions of men. And I think what he uh, essentially has at heart here is these secrets that the Gnostics claimed to hold. Let me tell you something. The unregenerate or the carnal mind is always enthralled with the prideful exclusivity of secrecy. Why do you, why do you think it is that secret groups and lodges and Freemasons and Illuminati and all this stuff has such an appeal to people? Oh, I, why do they care? I remember I was talking to a guy one time, or actually my brother-in-law was talking to a buddy of his, does a Freemason. You don't meet a lot of young Freemasons. But this guy was a, a Freemason. And uh, the guy was trying to get my brother-in-law to become a Freemason. And my brother-in-law was like, man, I'm not interested. I I don't, I got enough hobbies. And my brother-in-law asked him, he said, let me ask you something. Why do you want to be, how does it benefit you to be a part of this? And he said, man, like like you wouldn't believe it gives you all kind of business connections. It gives you all kinds of connections with people. They can help you out. They can get you jobs. If you're in, in, in construction, they get you contracts and all kinds of stuff. And he looked at him. and he said, man, you've been impl- unemployed for two months. <laughs> he wasn't in it because it was helping him in that respect. No, listen, and this is not as, as I had a granddaddy that was a Freemason. I, I'm not necessarily saying everybody's Freemason is a spawn of Satan. I understand there's people that get involved with it for cultural reasons and stuff. I do believe as an entity and as a movement that there is something inherently evil and wicked about it. But that's not to say that every person that has a Masonic ring or, you know, has, has been a part of it that, you know, God hates them. I'm not implying that. But I'm saying, why does that have such a draw on people? Same reason, by the way, that Calvinism has such a draw on people. It's this notion and idea that I'm part of this special little group. What a bunch of nonsense. The fact is, God is... If we choose to reject Christ, that excludes us from the family of God. But God's not in the business of exclusivity. God went to great lengths that he might taste death for every man, that whosoever will could believe in Jesus Christ. God's in the business not of, of pushing people out, but of bringing people in. The traditions of men that he speaks of, philosophy is based on the traditions of men. He says after the rudiments of the world. The term rudiment it literally means an element, uh, like the most basic. Uh, think of the term building block, like a building block. It's almost, I got kids, I think of Legos, Right? Legos are building blocks. Uh, One Lego by itself is of no significance, but the idea is that you build them on top of each other. But at the end of the day, contrary to what great swaths of the population believe, Legos are children's toys. That's what they are, you know. I don't care what your hobbies are. It's between you and God and your spouse, all right. But by and large, building blocks tend to be the things that children play with. My kids love them, you know. And... What he's pointing to, he pulls this word rudiments. He's going to talk about as it relates to Judaism here a little bit later. But in the Old Testament, they were dealing with the rudiments, the building blocks. Think of the Old Testament law as being sort of the kindergarten of revelation to mankind. God spelled everything out in pictures. Because guess what? Most of the time, listen, if if all the books on your bookshelf have pictures in them, something's probably wrong. Because a picture book is typically something that's used for children, right? We use it to illustrate something because it cannot be apprehended or grasped through direct communication. And in the Old Testament, it was the kindergarten of God's revelation. All these pictures are given to point towards Christ. Paul says, listen, we're not living in the kindergarten anymore. We've graduated. We're not on the milk of the Word anymore. We're living on the meat of the Word. And he's again, he's going to point to this as he deals with ceremonialism later, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But suffice it to say that that he's driving at the fact that we have no longer just the shadow, we have the substance. And he's saying the cults that want to draw you into intellectualism and into ceremonialism and ritualism and all these things, they're trying to take you back to a lesser form of God's revelation. It says the rudiments of the world. And he says these things, they're not after Christ. At the end of the day, the real problem with them is they, they take away from the person of Jesus Christ. The real mistake, and you can, you can read through these, uh, they're, they're alliterated out here, but let me sum it up by saying this. The mistake of intellectualism is it leaves out or misrepresents Jesus Christ. He claims that we can know God apart from the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. It implies that we have within our mental faculties everything we need to be on good standing with God. I'm not against people being smarter than they are. I certainly don't want them to be dumber. But I do believe this, that when we lean upon philosophy and intellectualism as a means to get God, we're going to always come up short. Because at the end of the day, it's not that God is a chaotic, disorganized or illogical uh, being. It's not that his revelation is nonsensical, but it is that it's on a higher plane than us. We have thoughts. God also has thoughts. Our thoughts make sense. God's thoughts make sense. Here's the problem, though. Our thoughts, they're not his thoughts. You know what? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts on a different place. So there's certain things we can't know from our thoughts because they're God's thoughts. And the only way we can know them is through the revelation of the word of God. Him having spoken them, revealed them to us. So he points to intellectualism, secular reasoning in the gospel. Look at verse number 11 with me. We've skipped over a couple of verses. Let me back up here. I'm getting ahead of myself. So you be patient with me uh, in giving these mistakes. I, I want you to notice them. Verse number nine. He points to three problems that intellectualism makes. Number one, it ignores the meaning of Christ's birth. It says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I'm just going to run through these real quick. The Gnostics claims they claim they knew mysteries, right? And if you were a part of their group, they'd tell you all about the mysteries. And again, that's a part of intellectualism. Well, you just don't understand. Well, you just don't know. Well, you just don't have access. Paul says, hey, if we've got access to Christ, we've got access to God. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. At the beginning of verse number 10, it says, and you are complete in him. They miss the mystery of Christ's body. That by knowing God through the person of Jesus Christ, we have everything that we would possibly need. They sought to add something to the believers at Colossae through their rituals, through their secrets, through their initiations, through their uh, ceremonies. Paul says, we don't need any of that nonsense. We're complete in him. If we got him, we got enough. And then it ignores the majesty of Christ's being. It says in verse 10, which is the head of all principality and power. Uh, we'll get into this when we talk about mysticism. But one of the great things that the Gnostics were pushing was this idea of, of occultists worshiping angels, uh, spirits and beings. And they believed that Christ was just a lower, lesser form of an angel. Paul says, no, he's not a lesser form. He's the head of all principality and power. To know him is to know the greatest and loftiest spiritual being. In all of existence. Alright, now let's look at ceremonialism. Look at verse number 11. He says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He said, We're buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. I'm going to pause there, and I want you to notice four things here. First notice, he points to what has been shed through Jesus Christ. So he's moved on from intellectualism, now he's getting into ceremonialism. In the Old Testament, ceremony was a large portion of man's relationship with God. And the thing that embodied ceremonialism, the very most fundamental step and right of ceremonialism, For the Jewish individual, for the Jewish male, was circumcision. Circumcision pictured the putting away of the flesh. I won't go into all the history of it because time won't allow me. But suffice it to say that God had given Abraham some promises. And Abraham decided he wanted to uh, accomplish God's means and will and desire and design through his own ability. So he takes Hagar, his wife's handmaid, an Egyptian. He goes in unto her. Uh, She conceives of child. And a son by the name of Ishmael is born. When God sees this, 13 years pass before God speaks to Abraham again. Then God speaks to him. He reaffirms the promise. He reaffirms that he's not done with Abraham. He reaffirms that indeed a child will be born. And within a year, Sarah is going to be holding a little baby boy. A year passes. And uh, when this baby is born, God had commanded that Abraham circumcise this child. What was he getting at? He was trying to point to Abraham the fact that you can't accomplish through flesh that which must be accomplished through faith. And circumcision was a ceremony that was given to represent that inclusion in the covenant of Abraham. Paul points to the fact that circumcision is not, and I I understand it's a common cultural practice today, but in as much as it's seen as a religious ceremony, it was never a Gentile thing. It was always a Jewish thing. It was never meant to bring people into the family of God. It was meant to bring people into the family of Israel. And he's pointing to the fact that we in this dispensation of grace, that ceremonies, circumcision being the most rudimentary and basic and fundamental of all of them, they hold no importance in the life of the believer. Why is that? Well, because the ritual has been replaced with the reality. He says that we are circumcised but not with the circumcision made with hands, but the circumcision made without hands. In other words, not in that which circumcision pointed to, or not in circumcision itself, but in that which circumcision pointed to. In the reality of the matter. In other words, God, there's no need for ceremony because we live in the substance of it. God is doing in actuality in the person of Christ in saving the believer, that which he was only giving a shadow of in Old Testament ceremony. He points to that which has been shared With Christ as being the reason for that verse number 12, we are buried with him in baptism. Now, Let me point to the fact that baptism is not a ceremony. Baptism is an ordinance. Baptism is not something we do because it draws us closer to God, nor is it something that we do as achieving or apprehending some great spiritual truth. In other words, circumcision was something that was done prospectively. It looked forward in faith. But baptism is something that looks retrospectively. It looks backwards in witness and testimony. The two ordinances given to the New Testament church are baptism and the communion table. Neither of these things look forward in their main purpose and goal, but they look backwards. Baptism points to the fact that we have died with Christ. And communion points to the fact that Christ has died for us. Neither of these things are given with the intent of making us closer to God, but rather bearing witness to the relationship that exists with God. He points to the divine operation. He says that the baptism is merely an outward expression of an inward experience. It's been the faith of the operation of God that has spiritually baptized us into the body of Christ. And baptism is not a ceremony that brings us into fellowship with God, but it merely bears witness and testimony to what has already happened. Look at verse number 13. He points to the divine opportunity that we have. He says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision, of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The purpose of circumcision was symbolically to address the flesh, the flesh, fallen man, fallen nature. And Paul points to the fact that that's already been addressed, not through circumcision, but through Calvary, through the cross. So there's no need for it. There's that which has been shared, that which has been shown by Christ. Verse 14, man, I wish I had about four more hours. You're patient. You love the word of God. You'll stay. Look what it says in verse 14. In doing this, blotting out, Paul says, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, it's interesting because this cult at Colossae was saying we need more ritualism. We need more ceremonialism. Paul says, man, don't you know, that stuff was not for us. That stuff was against us. That was not stuff that made us better with God. That was stuff that pointed to our lack of rightness with God. The term handwriting that's used here, it carries with it the idea of of a signature of responsibility. In, In other words, think about when you went and bought a car or when you went and bought your house. And they had you sign on that dotted line. And you were making a promise that you were going to pay those payments. Whenever at Mount Sinai, God gave his law, the children of Israel answered back in response to that. They said, all this will we do. God had never asked them to respond that way. But they said, put our name on the dotted line, God. We'll keep every one of these. God said, no, you won't. You can't. And so man is left with a defaulted bill of sale. He's not paid for what he promised he'd pay for. What did Christ do on the cross of Calvary? He took his name and he took his payment and he took his blood and he wrote paid in full across that handwriting of ordinances. That which was against us has been taken out of the way. And we now can have a relationship with God. It deals with the question of sin. Verse 15, it deals with the question of Satan. Again, much of Gnosticism was obsessed with mysticism, with greater, higher beings, and Christ was viewed as just part of a lower tier. But what does Paul say about it? That Christ has spoiled principalities and powers, and he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. One of the things, there's two things that these cults could not address. One was the sin of man. They had to try to make sin equated with matter, and they were handling it in this clumsy, clunky way because they had no answer to man's sinful nature. The cross of Calvary addressed man's sin. And another is they sought to somehow worship and enter into occultism to find and curry favor with divine beings. But Christ has already addressed our divine or our spiritual enemies. He's already triumphed over them. He has done that which the cults could not do. He has done that which ceremony could not do. What has resulted in this? Well, notice what has been shattered by Christ. Verse 16 it says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. I know a lot of New Testament believers have tried to take this passage to suggest that uh, drinking alcohol or partaking in drugs is okay, because we're not glad any man judges. Anybody being scripturally honest has to recognize that he's not talking about the sin of alcoholism or the sin of substance abuse and, and drugs. He's talking about dietary laws. Uh, the same way that he also talks about days and the way that he, in this passage, he talks about moons, new moons, Sabbath days. What he's saying essentially is this, that in Christ, all of that Old Testament system of days and of diets, of all of those things that were used to point forward to the fulfillment by Christ, why would we go back to those things? They've been done away with. Listen, Rome can have her ceremonies. I've got the real thing in Christ. The Freemasons can have their ceremonies. I'm don't. i I'm not going to stand up and say, I am in darkness and need to be brought in the light. The day I got born again, I was brought into the light. I was translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. I don't need those things. They hold no sway for me. They hold no merit for me. I don't need the shadow. I'm dwelling in the light. I'm a child of light through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he addresses ceremonialism. Then he moves on to mysticism. Verse number 18. He says, Let no man beguile you. He uses that term beguile again. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Let me tell you something. Mysticism is one of the most prevalent things in society today. Not in the sense of uh, lighting candles to an altar in your closet, not in the sense of playing with a Ouija board. I guess people do that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But I'm saying the mysticism that is so prevalent today, listen to this, is the exalting of the testimony of experience above the truth of Scripture. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, let me tell you about an experience I have. And not a shred of it can be found in precedent in the truth of God's Word. Now listen, I don't want to limit God or put Him in a box. There's a lot of things God can do and He don't have to inform me about all of them. But by the same token, The moment that we give more credence to man's experience than to God's revealed truth, we have veered into a territory of not just things that are extra scriptural, but things that are anti-scriptural. Notice the false modesty of this cult. I think this is interesting. And I'm going to give you my perspective on this. He says, let no man beguile you. The word means to defraud, cheat you out of something. That's what it means. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. What does that mean? A voluntary humility. I wrote a couple of phrases down. I think it may frame it. How many times have you heard someone say something like this? Who are we to say what's possible or what's real? Or they'll say this. Listen carefully. Who are we to judge another person's experience? I, I remember. I'm not going. I don't have time to. But I remember reading on Facebook one time. Somebody was talking about scriptural truth, and this. Is, somebody replied this way. They said, "Well, I don't follow the Bible. I just follow the Holy Spirit." Let me tell you something, the modern charismatic movement, modern tongues movement is rooted in that mentality of saying, well, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. This is what I experience. I don't need to be rude. But I don't care what you experience. I care what the Bible says. And it is always presented from this perspective. Well, I'm not the person to judge. No, no, sir. You're not. No, man, you're not. But this right here. This isn't a place to judge. I don't have the authority, but God's word has the authority. And we ought to never let any man defraud us of the reward of revealed divine truth. How dare we make apologies for standing on the truth of God's word? Notice the false mediators of this cult. It says in the worshiping of angels, I'm going to tell you something. This is going to make somebody mad. I love you. Hope you love me. But one of my great pet peeves is stories about angels. I'm not saying there aren't angels. I believe there are angels. I'm not saying angels don't interact and intervene in the world around us. I believe they do. He's made his his angels uh, ministering spirits. I don't doubt that one bit. But any time that a story winds up with us exalting an angel instead of exalting Christ, we've gone astray. Real angels in the Bible would never accept worship. They always refused worship. Go through your Bible. They always pointed to Christ. I got news for you. I, you. I'm not going to argue with you because i got better things to do. But if an angel shows up in your life and he don't talk about Jesus, I don't believe I'd listen to him. A real angel, if an angel shows up in your life and lets you fall down at his feet, I believe I'd run from him. A real angel will never, never speak of himself. Not even the Holy Ghost testifies of himself. And he's God. He points to Christ. So this notion of of angel worship, of an obsession with the supernatural that's not rooted in Scripture, uh, Paul warns against this. Notice the false mentality of the cult. What does he say that this does? Well, what do they do? They're intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You know what's at the very heart of it is this. I've experienced something that you haven't experienced. God loves me enough that he sent me an angel. God loves me enough that he gave me a vision. God loves me enough that he spoke to me audibly. He don't love you that much, but he sure loves me that much. I know something that you don't know. There's another problem with it. It infringes Christ's place. In doing that, they're not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. You know the problem with the tongues movement is it's about the Holy Ghost, and it ain't about Christ. You know the problem with Calvinism? It's about the Father, and it ain't about Christ. You know the problem with mysticism? It's about angels, and it ain't about Christ. Whatever it is that's trying to draw you away, if it ain't about Christ, it ain't of Christ, and it ain't of God. The problem with all of the, with this uh, oversized emphasis on experience is it draws attention away from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and from the clear revealed truth of Scripture. I wanted to read this to you. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it. Countless deceiving spirits are abroad in the unseen world. The fellow we read earlier, D.M. Panton, he sounded the, law, the alarm and he quotes an ex-medium, a fellow named Cladgett, who said this. Stop and think about this. This is what the man said. This guy's an ex-medium. This is an ex-fortune teller. He said, I have yet to meet the first spiritist of whom I did not find one of two things to be true. Either they were renegade church members or they were persons who at one time had been under deep conviction from the Holy Spirit and had driven away their convictions. I do not say it's true of all spiritists, but I have never met one and I have met a great many of whom it was not true. It's born not in submission to the person of Christ, his divine will and plan, but it's born of the exaltation of self. We got three, four verses. Let's run through them real quick. Verse 20. He points to legalism. It says, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. He couples with legalism aestheticism because they basically are, are form and, and function of the same. And he points to this. I like, I, I like how it was said, although maybe i take a little issue with some particulars. But the commentator made this statement. He said, Christianity is not about precepts. It's about principles. Now, I, if we if we have grace and seek to... Align that with Scripture, I believe there's a lot of wisdom to. That Christianity, part of the problem, when your Christianity is reduced to merely a list of do this and don't do that, you've missed what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about regulation, it's about relationships. Now listen carefully, every relationship has regulations. If I was to walk home and bring another woman in on my arm and say, Honey, I just noticed you've been a little overwhelmed with housework, so I married me another wife, and she's here, and y'all are just going to take turns sharing the bed with me, but this will be great. Now there's someone to vacuum while you're doing dishes. I bet you I'd be sleeping on Wallridge Road in my truck. Now, our relationship is not about rules. It's about relationship, but every relationship that's functional has rules. It has regulations. But the problem is when our relationship with Christ has been reduced to merely a list of rules. You can go through the outline. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But notice what he says when we reduce Christianity to merely a system of rules. He says there's a few things that result from it. Notice where this system of rules collapses. Verse 22, he says, which all are to perish with the using. You know, the problem with your Christianity being about rules is that you never are satisfied. There's always going to be another rule and another rule and another rule and another rule. Like an artist painting a picture that just don't know when to quit. There'll always be another brush stroke. There'll always be another rule. Until you find contentment in the person of Christ. And trust me, he'll dictate your life. He's not going to let you run around as a renegade. But until it's about your relationship with him, you'll never find satisfaction in rules. Notice where they come from. He says, after the commandments and doctrines of men. I, you know, well, I don't want to get into trouble with this. But suffice it to say that there are a great many things that we have attached to biblical Christianity that you will not find a biblical precedent for. Things that have come from the doctrines and commandments of men that we have set up to be standards, that we have said this is necessary, that we find no scriptural precedent for. Why do they convince people? Look at verse 23. Which things indeed have a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. You know why people do it? Because they can brag about it. It, it, it's, not the, it's not the idea that I have my will under subjection. It's the idea that I'm exerting my will over other people. They have a show of wisdom. The show means that they have a picture of wisdom. They put on like it's wise. If you can give a bunch of... I found this to be true, man. If you can give a bunch of people rules, if you can walk around... you can walk around into any business, you want to get a promotion to your job tomorrow, walk in and just start telling people what to do and really mean it. For long, man, they'll have, a, they'll have you an office with a, with a plaque and a title. You'll be in middle management. And you'll die there. You just show up and start telling people what to do. People say, well, I guess they know what they're talking about. And a lot of Christianity is based on that. People just showing up, telling a bunch of people what to do. And they say, well, I guess that's the boss. Here's the problem with it. It says, not in any honor to the satisfying of flesh. You know what it doesn't address? The flesh issue. You know the problem with legalism? It seeks to address the flesh through the flesh. It seeks to address the emptiness of the flesh through the imposing of the will of the flesh. You know what does address the flesh? And I'm done. The cross of Calvary. Christianity is not about... I believe in standards. I believe in standards. But Christianity, if all we've got are standards with no substance... With no leading of the spirit of God, we have a form of godliness, but we've denied the power thereof. It ought to be that there's more to our Christianity than a list of do's and don'ts.